welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Jonathan Sudart, CEO and co-founder of Turing. Um, and uh, you're here for Turing's Distinguished Speaker Series. Uh, we have a very special guest, Ashu Garg, uh, General Partner at Foundation Capital, and uh, Turing's uh, founding investor, or investor zero, if you will. Um, I I'm very excited to have Ashu here for, for this special series of uh, Turing's Distinguished Speakers. Um, the topic for this uh, series is uh, how to build unicorns. So we're gonna have conversations with CEOs, founders of unicorn companies, Decacon companies, and the investors who work side by side with these companies and work on identifying some of these, uh, these unicorn companies, what makes them special, um, and hopefully it's useful for uh, founders, leadership teams, exec teams of, uh, of unicorn companies. Um, for a little bit of background, uh, Turing is an automated uh, AI platform that lets companies spin up their engineering dream teams in the cloud. We have a platform where you can push a button to uh, automatically hire pre-vetted engineers on demand. Um, today, we now live in a remote first world. Every company is in a race to reap the benefits of remote engineering talent. Um, the reasons are obvious. You get to tap into a planetary pool of engineers. Uh, you get to uh, distributed teams work effectively now. Uh, and companies don't really want to spend a lot of time sourcing engineers, evaluating engineers, doing tons and tons of interviews. Companies want to build product and move fast, um, which is why a platform like Turing exists where you can just push a button and get going. Um, and uh, if you're interested, go to turing.com um, and, and sign up if, uh, if your primary bottleneck to, to building a unicorn is hiring great engineers. Um, and uh, without further ado, um, uh, I'd like uh, Ashu to maybe, uh, maybe introduce himself uh, very briefly, and we, then we'll jump into questions on how to build a unicorn. Uh, Ashu, on to you. Thanks, Jonathan, for having me here today. Uh, this, is, this is a really special moment. Uh, very quick introduction. I'm a general partner at Foundation Capital. I lead our enterprise investing efforts. Uh, I've been at Foundation now for 14 years. And prior to Foundation, you know, I started off my career as an engineer, graduating from IIT Delhi, uh, and spent 15 years in a variety of operating roles, uh, mostly in technology companies, sort of culminating in sort of two stints at Microsoft, uh, leading the machine learning and AI uh, work we were doing, and before that, le leading field marketing for the software businesses. Uh, but coming on to your question around uh, uh, what's the secret behind building unicorns? You know, great companies always start with some unique insight into a customer problem and a unique insight into how they will solve that problem. So you have to find a, a, a large problem. Uh, and sometimes it's an existing market that is huge. Uh, and sometimes the market, the segment that you start off with is small today but it's growing very rapidly and will become huge over time. Uh, but either way, you, you have to have a really tough problem that people want help on. You've got to have a unique approach to solving that problem, a large market, either large today or large over time. But then, the, you know, the, the, like in any recipe, the, the salt makes all the difference. The, the ingredient there uh, is really founders. I think there are, what makes the difference when everything else is equal is 
his founders who have the grit, the persistence, uh, and are willing to do what it takes to cross the, the hundreds of hurdles you have almost every other day. Yep, that's right. And I think like one thing that's interesting about your approach is you typically advocate um, like writing code pretty late in the day. Like I think what you said, you said pick a big customer problem and have a unique insight. So it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done uh, to first validate the problem and validate sort of the, the, uh, the feasibility of your, of your insight or the fit of your solution to the problem. Um, can, can you try, like, how do you come up with, with these, um, with, how, how do you know if this is a unicorn sized uh, uh, problem or not? So, so I think, I think Jonathan, you said it well, I think in most B2B problem spaces, especially at the application layer, the hardest part is identifying a problem that deserves your attention and time. And identifying, you know, a point of entry through which you can create your wedge. You know, it's, 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 it's like a lever. If you have a lever at the right point with the fulcrum at the right point, you can move the earth. And so you have to find that lever in the, in the right point for the fulcrum. And, and I think that takes, it's a contact sport. It takes a lot of contact with customers, with other people participating in that market to figure out what is that thing that people will, will, will buy and that will you know, reduce friction for them. What's that compelling customer value proposition? Uh, and in most cases, if you spend too much time upfront coding, you very often sort of miss the forest for the trees because now you, you're locked into whatever features you've built without really understanding what the, mark, you know, what the market wants. Now that's not necessarily always true, to be fair. I think there are, uh, there are situations, especially as you go lower down the stack. So if you think about Databricks, one of my early investments, uh, Databricks is a technical innovation. Now, that technical innovation still came from the insight that Hadoop and MapReduce specifically was not scaling and wouldn't scale with the data sets required and the use cases. So it was still customer driven. And in fact, it you know, came out of work at one of my other portfolio companies, Conviva, where they were facing that problem, where they needed to do real-time analytics and, and MapReduce wasn't real-time enough. That said, in an infrastructure company, the technical innovation really matters. And very often it's about, you have to follow the technology and see where it leads you. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I would say, you know, there are exceptions. Uh, but then coming back to your broader question of how do you decide that the market is large enough? You know, at some level you never know, but I think about sort of this from a first principles point of view. And let's just take Turing as an example. You know, if you ask yourself, how many engineers are there today? Not how many remote engineers, how many of those engineers, what do you think that market will be, you know, three or four or five years from now? Uh, you come up with, you know, TAM at the absolute sort of at the highest level now. In the case of Turing, that's massive. It's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a multi-trillion dollar TAM. Now, not all of that market will be applicable on day one. And so you have to slice and dice that to say, what engineering will people outsource? Who will be willing to outsource remotely? Uh, and some of those are judgment calls. But in general, my instinct is if you're solving a very large problem and you think about the market broadly enough, you have 
you know, a much higher probability of building a unicorn than if you start off with a very narrow view of the market. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, Ashu. And um, so you you work with several unicorn companies today, and you've sort of witnessed the transition of companies that go through that scrappy startup stage to to that that unicorn stage. What are some of the things that a company needs to do differently as it transitions from that scrappy startup phase to that unicorn phase? That's a great question, and you know the. the in some ways, it's a paradox because what makes you successful at the scrappy startup stage can also hinder you in some ways, uh, but you have to find the right balance. Uh, so I would say the first thing that, you know, exceptional startups in the scrappy stage do well is they have an incredible level of focus on a customer problem on a set of customers, you know, what we call the ICP very often. I would say that's something that you want to, you don't want to lose. And so the balance for founders and companies is how do you keep innovating on the product, but don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by new shiny objects that come along, especially as you get more cash. Cash in some ways is the biggest distraction. It allows you to start thinking about doing different things and, and, and you wanna leverage the cash to strengthen your value proposition, to innovate in the product, but you don't wanna get distracted by trying too many new things. So it's, it's this notion of, the one thing I would say is keep doing is focus while innovating. I think the second thing is in a small scrappy startup, the founder CEO does almost every job in the company. I mean, you've lived that, you know, you're the chief marketing officer, you're also the CRO, but you're also the sales rep. And very often you're also the SDR or BDR. Mm -hmm. And as you start making the transition, you have, you have to sort of step away and build a leadership team. You need executives in each key role who can build and scale those functions. But attracting, recruiting, and then managing executives takes a lot of time and energy. And I think it is in itself more than a full-time job for most CEOs. And so how do you balance the, doing the things you're doing today? Because you need to keep growing the company every day and every week and building out that leadership team. That's a hard balance. Uh, and that's one I would always encourage people to start doing early. Because if you suddenly get to the point where you need to hire six executives at the same time, you're never gonna get there. You'll hire zero. Mm -hmm. And so you need one every quarter and you need to plan through that. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a big transition. Mm -hmm. I think the third big transition is how do you put some systems and processes in place mm -hmm. or keep them lightweight enough? You want to start, now that you're no longer managing every function yourself, you, need, you, you want to have some indication of what is a pipeline look like? Uh, what are the odds that I'm going to miss or make the quarter next quarter? Mm -hmm. And so you need some tracking tool, some process. Uh, at the same time, you want to keep that lightweight mm -hmm. because you don't want to build too much bureaucracy and too many silos in the organization. So th those are the three things that I think are, are, the, are the things you want to think about as you go from, this, from a scrappy startup to a unicorn and beyond. Mm -hmm. That's great, Ashu. So it was focus, 
building a great uh, uh, executive team uh, and uh, having good systems and processes in place to sort of rein in the chaos uh, a, a little bit, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that that's super interesting. And I can say like from firsthand experience, like as Turing's been going through this phase, one of the things that I'm most grateful to you for is for your push on the uh, on making sure we had a, uh, a have a really strong executive team, a really strong uh, leadership team. That just uh, that just been such a great source of leverage, um, and it just helps us go so much faster. And it's always one of the things that's very tempting to put at number two instead of at a P zero. Like we want to hit this quarter's numbers, but how can I do that if I'm spending thirty percent of my time recruiting? But the reality is, you kind of have to set aside at least thirty percent of your time recruiting your senior leadership team. Uh, otherwise, like you're always going to be running fast to stay in the same place in the treadmill, and at some point you'll fall off. Like you, you or, or you're going to tap out. Your top speed is going to tap off. Like you're going to be speed limited at some at, at some certain limit. So thank you for saying that, Jonathan. And I think absolutely. In fact, if I had to pick the one thing that you know is most likely the barrier to becoming getting to a unicorn, but is definitely the biggest barrier to getting to a decacorn, it is this, it is how much time and energy people spend on building the leadership team. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's an it, it's a little bit like a treadmill, you know, it's 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 like a uh, a treadmill. Yeah, it's never built and. As soon as you think you have the right leadership team, another hole will emerge. Yeah, and so you just have to make it part of what you do uh, every week and every yeah. day. Yeah, and I think like the and and build recruiting is one part of it, and then there is the other part of it, which is making sure that your executive team is successful, that they are onboarding, they are building the right relationships with their peers, they they integrate well with the with the company, and you get the the full. Uh, you 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 get the full their full contribution right like the and and that takes quite a bit of work too because at at each stage in the company the kind of people you hire are slightly different like I almost think of it like driving a car where there's there's first gear second gear third gear and different people come into their strides at different sort of gear ratios like in a sense and there's a little bit of sort of uh, constructive friction from time to time like there is there is there is the there is one persona. I'm sure every exec team has this persona, which is, hey, let's build fast. Let's let's build let's build fast and furious. Then there is the other persona, which is, um, hey, fast and furious was good in the first couple of years. Like what got us here is not going to get us to this next step. Yeah. We need better systems, better processes. And the reality is there is sort of merit in both sides in different situations, in different product areas, in different categories. There's no blanket area. And you kind of have to, this culture sort of, um, uh, the, the, the DNA of the company kind of changes. There is this new ingredients into the gene pool that you add. No, I think, I think it's very well said. You know, it's a little, and the analogy is a great one. It is a little bit like, you know, how do you, how do you create a transmission system that works? And yeah. the gears have to mesh. And, you know, as a founder, most founders sort of inherently have to realize that great executives bring a ton to the company, but they're, they're still executives. Yeah, they're not founders. You know, many of them have worked in more of a siloed environment. They're used to sort of working in silos and creating silos. Uh, many of them have, you know, worked in more political environments. And even if they're not hugely political themselves, some of that rubs off. And so how do you create 
you know, an environment where they work well together, where you get the best out of every person. And yeah. none of them will ever be perfect. Yeah. And so if you focus on their gaps, yeah, you know, there'll always be friction. And if you can find a way to focus on their strengths and help each of them realize what they are exceptional at, yeah, that's when a team really sort of starts to sort of, you know, it, it goes in a gear four. And, and, and you start you see acceleration in speed. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. And that was like one learning for me, like in the last uh, in the last couple of years, too, which is to focus on people's strengths and kind of assume that you can't. This may sound kind of, you know, pessimistic, but not really assuming you can't really do much uh, that much about their weaknesses. But but really put them in a position where there's like hire people who have very strong spikes in the areas that you need them to be strong at and um, put them in a position where the company is exposed to their strengths and not as uh, exposed to their areas for improvement. We either hire around it or support them in some other ways, much like it is for, for me. Like I have my strengths, like I have my gaps and I have to sort of fill in the, fill in the gaps the right way. Like I'm not good at everything. And the- um, I, th I think that's well said. Look, I think for most adults in the time frame that you're building a company uh, the the way to get the most out in and for, for the individual to have the most fun and the most sad sense of satisfaction, it is about focusing on their strengths. You know, helping people plug their uh, their deficiencies or weaknesses is a is a very long multi year process and in most cases never works out. Now the balancing act is you do have to decide when is someone's weaknesses gotten to the point where they are a barrier to the next phase of growth. And at that point, you have to have the hard conversation and have them step aside. Yeah. And so, for example, you know, the larger a company in, in the first phase of a company's growth, very often you want a sales leader that leads from the front. You know, they're still a manager of salespeople, but they're very often the best salesperson in the team. They're an inspirational leader. They're the one that you go to when you wanna close the big deal. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those people are also very good at processing, uh, but most often they're not. Mm -hmm. And in the early, you know, in these early days sort of getting to the unicorn stage, very often you can supplement them with process people. Mm -hmm. But as you start to go from unicorn to decacorn, as you start to go to a hundred person sales organization, mm -hmm. it's almost entirely about process. Mm -hmm. And it's not just process for sales management, it's process for sales management, process for recruiting, process for managing sort of quota setting, processes for managing territory allocation. Uh, you know, sales really becomes a system at that scale. Mm -hmm. And you need someone who can both design and run that system. Mm -hmm. And very often, you know, that sort of going from low single digit tens of you know, salespeople, 10, 20, 30 to 100 plus salesperson, mm -hmm. it often takes a different leader. Not mm -hmm. always. There mm -hmm. are people who actually can do both. But mm -hmm. if you don't have that person, then you have to have the hard conversation and make the change. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And uh, Ashu, so you, you, you mentioned uh, uh, focus, building a strong exec team, good systems and processes as things that you, you kind of start focusing on more at this unicorn stage. What are some of the common pitfalls or speed bumps or obstacles that companies run into at the stage 
uh, beyond sort of the lack of the three things that you mentioned? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, there's just like there's no one formula for success, mm-hmm. there's no one reason why companies struggle or fail. In, in many situations, luck is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this one customer, you hire this one exec, you know, uh, as they say, every company is one step away from greatness. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get that one step, very often that's why people fail. But if you put that aside, I would say the first thing, the first reason I've seen companies fail mm-hmm. uh, is the value proposition is just not compelling enough. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice to have, it's interesting, intellectually customers get it, but it just doesn't rise to the top of their priority list mm-hmm. uh, at the point at which, you know, they have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think really listening to the customers and saying, is this really important enough? I think the second thing is a lot of founders underestimate the friction to buy and adopt a new technology. Mm. Their personality is, you know, most founders have a very optimistic, risk-taking, try new things personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you look at the society at large, that's a very small subset of people. And so most customers don't have that personality. Mm -hmm. And so most customers are thinking about what if this doesn't work? What is it going to take for me to integrate this technology? How am I going to migrate data? How am I going to manage uh, my downside risk? And so I think you really have to think through the adoption issues. And so even if you have a compelling value proposition, thinking through how do you get people to adopt? What is the time to value? Mm-hmm. And can you, and you don't have to deliver all the value overnight, but can you deliver enough value quickly mm-hmm. and quickly would vary depending on the product and the customer segment, mm-hmm. but can you deliver enough value quickly such that people will then keep using your product to get more value over time? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see that often. I've seen companies that have incredible technology where hundreds of customers in the first meeting said, I need this. Mm-hmm. but they never close a sale because of the, the adoption issues as they start to sort of uh, get to market. Mm-hmm. I think the third thing I see, which is not obvious, is a lot of the challenges around founder dynamics. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the initial phases are hard. There are some amazing days, but there are some really tough days. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have, if you have only one founder uh, a solo founder has his or her own challenges because there's no one to talk to. There's no one to sort of uh, commiserate with. Uh, and at the same time, if you have multiple founders, then you run into finger pointing situations. You run into sort of founders feeling like the other person is not pulling their weight. You know, we talked about execs and not focusing on their weaknesses, but focusing on their strengths. The same is true of your co-founders. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people forget that and you start to see a lot of founder dynamics mm. emerge. Uh, so I would say those are some of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have in fact, and this may be my, my bias sample set, I've never seen a company fail because of the lack of cash. Mm. I've never had a portfolio company you know, that died because it couldn't raise money. Mm. Well, sometimes valuations are higher, sometimes they're lower, sometimes it takes a few weeks, sometimes it takes a few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But if you have if you have the right team, the right customer uh, momentum, you'll always raise money, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, you know, uh, I'm a strong believer that once we're in, in for a penny, in for a pound, mm-hmm. you know, we will support the company through that journey. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. And um, uh, so we spoke about like some of the things that could go wrong, um, and and one way to avoid things going wrong, or at least minimize the probability of that, is to plan well. And um, like the and and you've spoken quite a bit. You you wrote a very very helpful blog post on uh, planning processes, annual planning processes, and frameworks. Um, can you talk a little bit about how companies tend to plan when they re- at this unicorn stage? Like, what's the process? Do they, do you look one year ahead? Do you look three years ahead? Um, what are some things that the companies that do this well get right, and what are the things that the companies that that get wrong, like what do they get wrong as part of the planning process? It's it's a great question, uh, Jonathan. And you know, I think the thing about planning is it's one of those things where too little planning gets problematic, and it gets the more you the bigger you get, the lack of planning is hugely problematic. And at the same time, too much planning early on is also problematic because you're essentially throwing dark uh, darts blindfolded. Mm-hmm. And so at the unicorn stage, you know, I think about a company as having strong product market fit, having real clarity around their uniconomics, around their sales cycle, around sales productivity. And so if you know those things, I then think you have to, first of all, you have to start with a top-down view. If you let every executive build a bottom-up plan, uh, then you get into sort of a dozen plans that you're trying to reconcile all with different assumptions. So you need to create an envelope for the plan that is top-down. And I'll come back to how you make sure that you get buy-in, but you start with a top-down envelope. I think that envelope needs to have a lot of clarity four quarters out for most companies. In some cases where you have very, very short sales cycles, you can actually live with two quarters out. In some cases where sales cycles are more than six months, you actually need a six to eight quarter plan. Because the planning window is all a function of how far ahead do you have to hire salespeople. And if, if you have, let's say, a 12-month sales cycle, then a 12-month plan doesn't tell you much. You need actually, in that case, a, a, a 24-month plan. Mm-hmm. So, but on for most companies, I would say a four-week, a four-quarter plan. Is, is plenty with some view of what you know, the, the subsequent two quarters will look like. Mm-hmm. So you start with that envelope. You then you know, put some basic stru- you know, constraints in place. This is, this is our top line growth historically. So this is what we want to have as top line growth. You put some constraints around burn. You put some basic assumptions around uh, productivity, around you know, resourcing. And in general, I would say be very careful not to make too many aggressive assumptions. One of the biggest risks in planning is you assume improvement in every metric. And individually, each of those improvements seems reasonable, but cumulatively you're assuming a 2x improvement in productivity over four quarters, and that's not gonna happen. Or it's very unlikely to happen if you're doing a reasonable job today. I mean, if if you can get that, then you were doing a really shitty job in the past. And so I think start with a basic plan. And then I think it's, it's time 
to expand the circle of people who have input. And you want to get every executive team member to participate in the planning process. And there is a combination of both buy-in and negotiation there. Because every team is, you know, inevitably at the unicorn stage of executives that are negotiating a little bit for resources. Uh, they're, you know, they're looking both at the upside, but they're also looking at the downside for them. Personally, they misplan. And so there's an element of buying and negotiation. And during that process, the hardest part for a CEO is to really listen and distinguish where an executive is merely negotiating and where they're, they're not, they just don't believe the plan is doable. Because if it's the latter, you have to change the plan. There is no point having a plan that your exec team doesn't buy into, doesn't believe is possible. Mm -hmm. They may not have 100% confidence, but they have to believe it's possible with you know, at some confidence level. I, if I had to pick a number, I would say at 80, 85% confidence level. Uh, and so I think that process of back going back and forth and now fleshing out the assumptions, uh, I think is a really critical step in the plan. And then once you have a plan, the only thing you know about it for sure is it's wrong. So then the question is, why do you plan at all? And I think it, you plan because the planning process and the process of articulating the assumptions is what helps you understand what the drivers of the business are at that point and, and what the early indicators you should watch out for uh, and what the, you know, the, 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 the warning signs in the business might be. Mm -hmm. So, but once you have that plan, I think with that envelope, I then recommend that you review that plan uh, let's assume it's a four-week plan for a typical sales cycle where a company has a three to six-month sales cycle. You should review that plan uh, in a lot of detail every two quarters and revise it because every six months you'll have a lot more information and you should do a very lightweight review on a quarterly basis and start tweaking the assumptions quarterly. Uh, but most of, the, most of the update happens uh, every two quarters. And every time you update the plan, you want to do a rolling four-quarter plan. So you then have, have planned out the next two quarters uh, so you, because you need to start building capacity uh, for the subsequent year at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, th th that's, su that's super interesting and super helpful. And if somebody wants to look up the blog, your blog post on this, what should they uh, Google for, Rush? You know, it's a great question. I, am, I will have to look up myself right now. It's been a while since I pulled it up. We'll add it to the, to the show notes and to the to the... Uh, to the uh, podcast. That'll be great. Description. Uh, we will. We'll do that. Can, can I get that to you after the recording? Is that yes. okay? Yeah. And we'll, I we'll will get that, that to you. And typically, how long have you seen companies um, sort of uh, do this process? It sounds like there's, there's a there's top down, bottoms up, uh, a few iterations, a few, um, a few rounds of. You know, I, think, I think once you have give or take. 10 million in revenues. Once you have somewhere between 50 and 100 customers, once you have 10 plus salespeople, I think planning becomes really critical hmm. because there's a lot of uncertainty uh, that starts to creep into the system if you don't have a plan. Hmm. Uh, and then from that point on, you just keep doing it. I mean, you, you, you know, even $10 billion revenue companies need to do this uh, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And as the companies get larger, there'll be more nuances. But generally, I would say, 
if you do a rolling four quarter plan every six months, mm-hmm. uh, that should take you all the way through to in fact a billion dollars in revenues. And once we have this plan, I'm sure one of the um, uh, topics that you discuss at board meetings is sort of the diff between the plan and actuals in terms of uh, what what was higher than expected, what was lower than expected, which assumptions were violated, which which uh, which like how are we doing? The uh, is, is that is that the case? Like is that one of the things? Like at this unicorn stage, uh, what what do you see typically get discussed at board meetings? Uh, so I th- I think you're spot on. So I think board meetings are really a part have two two dimensions to them at the unicorn stage. I think there is a dimension around uh, reporting on operational and financial metrics. Uh, because at that point, you do have a plan. There is, there is an expectation of, you know, performing to ideally, you know, beating plan, but if not, you know, having an understanding of why you are sort of deviating from plan. And so it's important as part of the planning process to define what are the key metrics that you're going to focus on. Uh, and really, you know, there should be one metric for revenue, one metric for cash, one metric for gross margin, and, and you have a shared understanding of how those are defined. And those are the three things that really matter. Mm-hmm. But there's probably then another 20 or 25 metrics that are input metrics to those. Some of those are lagging indicators, some are leading indicators, but you need both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think getting that set of metrics agreed upon and really digging in at the start of every board meeting is critical. Ideally, you actually want to circulate them in advance. So the board meeting focuses on a discussion around why, not what the metrics are. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one big part of the board meeting. And I would say that's a third of a board meeting. I think the second third of the board meeting is an opportunity to dig into one or two strategic topics. And, and those topics are very often a combination of, you know, having a regular cadence. So you may, for example, once a year have a deep dive into the product. Once a year have a deep dive into the, into, into the go-to-market. Uh, you pick a topic that you do a regular cadence around, uh, and it may be twice a year, however you decide that cadence. And then one topic that comes out of the, the, op, the metrics discussion. So whichever metric isn't going well, let's say sales productivity has been a problem in the last quarter, then that's an obvious topic to dive into. Let's say pipeline is an issue and that's why someone missed plan. And that's an obvious, you know, deep dive. So pick a couple of topics that you can go deeper into and you can have a more substantive conversation. And, And the trick in that is to know which parts of the conversation are information sharing, versus where are you looking for input and help from the board and where you're trying to drive to a decision? Because those are three different things and you wanna be explicit about where, which of the three you know, uh, sets of objectives you have. So that's the second third of the board meeting. The last third of the board meeting, I think is always, almost always sort of a closed session, which provides a safe environment for the CEO to talk to the board about the people dynamics in the business and anything else that's top of mind. You know, sometimes it's it's competition, sometimes it's a legal issue, uh, but most of all, I would say the most of the closed closed sessions focus on the people dynamics because uh, that's a top area where you know founders 
have almost no one to talk to, very often not even their co-founder. So that's how I would structure the board meeting. And you know, the exact time allocation can vary, mm-hmm. but, but I like to think of that as, as, as three thirds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so the first is sort of a metrics review, sort of a diff against the plan. Uh, the second is sort of uh, a few meaty topics uh, with information sharing or take input or decide. And the third was this closed session. Um, I'd love to dig into the second portion, like in yeah. terms of the topics that discuss. I'm, for companies at this sort of, let's say, uh, uh, companies that are unicorn plus plus, like on route to, you know, to, to crossing 10 billion, like maybe that's the next milestone. For companies in that stage, like at that, that scaling a unicorn stage, uh, what are some of the, uh, are there any patterns in terms of uh, what topics typically come up that you could generalize from? Or is it very specific to individual, ch- or are the challenges very, very company specific? So I think there are some patterns. I don't think they apply all the time, but most of the time, I would say one of the topics that I sort of find, and, and is often a pitfall for companies making the transition from unicorn to decacorn, is customer satisfaction, customer advocacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, what happens is that product market fit is not static. And you know, when, when a company has five or 10 or 20 or 50 customers, the founders and the key you know, leaders in the company know every customer, know the issues. Mm-hmm. As you start scaling, you get, you know, there's some distance that builds up between the day-to-day usage of the product by customers and, and the key leaders in the company. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where the risk of uh, product market fit becoming ephemeral mm-hmm. is the most. It's mm-hmm. also the stage where very often you're expanding the ICP. You had a very tight ICP to start with. Maybe you're going into additional verticals. Maybe you're going down market into smaller customers or up market to larger customers. But the ICP is usually, it's like a balloon that's being filled with air. Mm-hmm. And so at that stage, uh, I think really having a handle on what is going on with your customer base and creating the right instrumentation for that is really important. Having a deeper conversation around it. And so that instrumentation can include everything from uh, CSAT scores to churn data to other product usage and adoption metrics, mm-hmm. but really making sure mm-hmm. that value delivered is increasing, mm-hmm. and friction to realize that value is being reduced. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things you want customers to keep seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say that's the number one topic at that stage. Mm-hmm. And it, ha- it requires structure, mm-hmm. whereas up to the unicorn stage, it sort of happens in an ad hoc fashion because it happens every day in the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the second topic at this stage that becomes critical is really starting to instrument productivity metrics mm-hmm. for the organization. Because you now have managers of managers and many layers of leadership in a company. Mm-hmm. On the go-to-market side, I think that's relatively straightforward. And I think most companies do it. Mm-hmm. They start having conversations about sales productivity, marketing productivity, sales cycles, uh, you, you've got to be careful that, you know, you're looking not just at, at the mean, you're looking at the median, you're sort of slicing and dicing the data the right ways. Mm-hmm. That's definitely, sales productivity is a very common topic. The harder conversation is engineering productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't have a good answer, but you sort of need to find a way to have that discussion. Mm-hmm. 
Because very often as you're increasing the size of the engineering team, what is actually happening is engineering productivity is falling. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that shows up over time, either in the form of technical debt or slowing innovation. Mm -hmm. And so having the conversation around engineering productivity, mm -hmm. uh, I think is an important deep dive topic to have. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, very often in these cases, in the case of engineering productivity, for example, you may not get a lot of input from the board. Mm -hmm. You are definitely not looking to the board to make a decision, mm -hmm. but it forces the team to rally around that topic mm -hmm. and, and to come up with a, you know, with a conscious decision about how much energy are we going to spend dealing with technical debt? How much energy are we going to spend dealing with uh, bug fixes in the current release of the product? And mm -hmm. how much energy are we going to spend on sort of the next big you know, innovative feature mm -hmm. or feature set? Mm -hmm. uh, makes sense, Ashu. And I think when you say engineering productivity, you're really lumping like product eng, data science, like all of that, right? That yes. The activity that goes in the sense. Yes. yes. All the activity associated with product development. Yeah, yeah. That, that's definitely kind of uh, tricky, tricky to tricky to measure well. And you kind of have need to have some good, good, uh, need, it needs a good balance. It's obviously, you need that to maximize tech leverage in the business and it gets kind of hard to measure output. Uh, it's very hard to measure. It's very, it's a very, difficult even conversation to have yeah in, in quantitative terms and you know sales productivity is so much easier to measure that people start focusing on that but i've often seen that the lack of a discussion around engineering or product development sort of productivity is actually what drives a decline in value creation because you're not moving fast enough yeah or you are Strategically on the go-to-market side, you're taking on challenges. So one example I've seen is boards will sit down and decide, you know, we're doing great in the mid-market, but if we want to continue to grow to the next milestone, we now need to go up market and get enterprise customers. Mm -hmm. You know, easy decision. It's a very obvious conversation. I mean, you've been in board meetings, I'm sure, where that's, where, where that's happened. Mm -hmm. What's missing in that conversation is what is it going to take from a product development standpoint to meet the requirements of enterprise customers? Mm -hmm. And what is the implication of those investments on our existing customer base? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had a company without naming the company that was firing in all cylinders, doing exceptionally well, the market leader in its segment. And they made this decision to go up market and at the same time, they were dealing with the replatforming issue and their underlying infrastructure. And they were also dealing with sort of a diversification of the product base from sort of one core product to two products. And individually, all three of those things made sense. Mm -hmm. And when you put them together, you know, the company fell apart. Mm -hmm. A company that had, you know, more than 25 million in revenues. The, the number two player in that market, now three years later is a public company, a very valuable public company. This company got sold for pennies on the dollar. No one made money mm -hmm. simply because the engineering you know, organization got stretched in different ways. Mm -hmm. And you know, the tech debt was so big that we were just focused on that. And then mm -hmm. we did fix that. But by the time we fixed the tech, tech debt, we didn't have the product for either the mid-market or the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, no tech debt, but no product market fit is, is not very useful. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and uh, speaking of boards, uh, for companies at this unicorn stage, um, what advice do you have for for um, for founders as they add uh, uh, board members at the, at the staff? Like, who's a good board member for a company at this stage in the company's journey? So I think you know. I think there are three things to think about when you add a board member at this stage. Uh, I think the first is you want to have someone that is additive to the group on a dimension where you are looking for good advice. So, for example, coming back to the example of my company, you know, company in the mid-market trying to go enterprise, if that's your focus, then go find a board member that has real depth of experience having made that transition. Mm-hmm. Not easy to find. Yeah. But if that's the number one challenge for the company, then go figure out who can help you with that challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you want to focus on the most, most, you want a board member that will uh, be additive in the conversation around the most important strategic topics for the next few years. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to be careful. If you pick the topic that, you know, is, is, is the topic du jour for, for the quarter, by the time you get the board member, the topic is no longer relevant. But yeah. so that's one. I think the second thing you want to look for is I think it risks more than just an individual topic. You want to find a board member that you have chemistry with and has chemistry with the rest of the board. The most important thing about a board is the board dynamics. Mm-hmm. If the board works well together, mm-hmm. is collaborative, can drive to a decision, is effective in communicating with each other, mm-hmm. That is a superpower for a company because most boards aren't like that. Most boards have inherent friction. You know, people are talking at each other versus talking to each other. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, s- people are in and out because they're they're all multitasking, especially with Zoom. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's multitasking all the time and nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. So I think making sure that the board di- every board member improves the dynamics doesn't take away from it. I think that's a second critical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the third thing is you want a board member that will bring a different and a diverse perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that perspective comes from gender diversity. Sometimes that comes from racial diversity. Uh, sometimes that comes from a diverse background, a functional diversity. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's very unique to the specific situation. Mm-hmm. But a board's job is to help open your eyes to new things and give you sort of guidance and advice in situations that you haven't sort of encountered before. And mm-hmm. so that's why the diversity matters so much. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. Uh, so, so it was um, uh, either someone who can help you with uh, topics that you need guidance, ideally yes. perennial topics that will last a couple of years, not, not for the topic of the quarter. Uh, and second, good chemistry, and third, uh, good uh, diversity. Um, diversity in perspective. But, and diversity can mean a lot of different things, I would say. It's, it's the diversity in the broadest sense. Got it, got it. And, uh, uh, the, um, um, and typically, at, at, the, at this unicorn stage, do you see companies do board, board meetings quarterly? I, I generally recommend that companies have a formal board meeting on a quarterly basis at this stage, and then have a board check-in in between board meetings. So you end up having eight meetings a year. Mm -hmm. 
and you use the check-ins to focus much more on the tactical topics. Mm -hmm. But even the check-ins try to have, you know, uh, a discussion about sort of whatever is top of mind. Uh, you know, so, you know, I would think of things like sales product, sales pipeline or marketing efficiency as tactical in this context, because it's about the, the here and now. Mm -hmm. And so you have those discussions very often in the check-ins and then sort of your product roadmap. There's nothing you can do about the product roadmap in a quarter for a unicorn company. It's, you know, it's a multi-quarter initiative. Those conversations you have on sort of the board meetings. Uh, and I would suggest that having the quarterly meetings in person as far as possible. Like there's still a huge difference in the nature of the interaction when, when you have those interactions in person. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, Ashu. Uh, this was great. This was super helpful. Thank you for sharing uh, your advice and your insights on this. Um, and uh, final question as we, as we wrap up. Uh, what what should companies look for in terms of their um, investing partners, like investors that they want to partner with for, uh, for, for throughout the, the course of the company's journey at this stage? Like when you're at this at this uh, sort of unicorn stage and you're you want to uh, uh, you're about to do like for your next round, what do you look for in investors at that stage? I'm sure it's very different from. Investors it, is, it is very different from the early stage. So I would say, so first of all, you have to separate, are you bringing on board an investor who has no board role? Or are you bringing on board an investor that has a board role? And mm -hmm. I think there's, obviously there's a lot of overlap, but there are some differences. So let's start with the, the, the first. Mm -hmm. I think for all investors, you want someone that is, you know, the most important criteria at this stage is do no harm. Mm -hmm. You know, typically a company from Unicorn to Decacorn, board members have some marginal upside. Mm -hmm. Mostly it's only downside. Because mm -hmm. the company has to execute at that stage. You know, if I make an introduction to one or two or three customers, you're going to appreciate that. But they're not going to change the trajectory of the company. I may make an introduction to an executive. And sometimes that can change trajectory. But even then that's rare at this stage because the company has a machine in place. So... Uh, I'm actually very focused on downside risks. The companies are still very fragile mm -hmm. at the unicorn to decacorn. You're still carrying a glass ball. You're playing soccer with a ball of glass. Mm -hmm. Think about it that way. Mm -hmm. You want to hit hard, but you don't want to hit too hard. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's, to me, that's the number one criteria. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, and I think that applies to both investors and investors who are board members. Mm -hmm. I think then some of the other stuff that we've talked about how will they add value? What are the things you really want help mm -hmm. on? And can they help you on those topics? Uh, I think all applies. Mm -hmm. I think at this stage, uh, you're still too early to worry too much about public market experience. Mm -hmm. I think it's a decacorn and beyond that you start thinking about, okay, how can they help me go public? Mm -hmm. And you're beyond the, do they have early stage experience? Do they know how to help me find product market fit? So it's, it's the stage in between uh, where I would focus on the basics, focus on do no harm, focus on can they help or be thoughtful about the strategic issues? Mm -hmm. Can they introduce you to great executives? Mm -hmm. More than customers. At this point, it's great executives that, that have the most impact mm -hmm. uh, on the company. Mm -hmm. That sounds great, Ashu. And... Um... Uh, for, for everyone listening, uh, Ashu and Foundation Capital have been 
have been phenomenal partners uh, to us at Turing as we as we became a unicorn over the last uh, couple of years since since working together. Uh, Ashu works with uh, several great unicorn companies. So if you are building a a company that's uh, that's looking for its uh, first round of capital or like seed series A, series B, like in in that range. Um, you should definitely talk to Ashu. If you need an intro to Ashu, feel free to reach out to me, um, uh, Jonathan at Turing.com, uh, or you can um, or you can reach out to Ashu uh, directly as well uh, at Foundation Capital. Foundation Capital is a great firm. So if you're if you're interested in finding uh, great partners from day zero, and for me, like what's been fun about working working with you, Ashu, and and Foundation has been, it's just like you've just been tremendous value add. Like the do no harm is like feels like a low bar. Like with you, like you and foundation have just been amazing partners in the trenches, like right from day zero, like helping recruit great execs, like helping in early sort of early go to market um, and really high value add, like being a great thought partner and strategy. Uh, so it's been great working together. So highly recommend working with Ashu and foundation. Um, if you're either at the unicorn stage or if you have ambitions to be a unicorn at some day. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's, it's, yeah, I really appreciate that, and you know, it's 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 really been a special journey together, and and, and you know, we we're just getting started, so uh, I'm excited about having exactly this conversation with a Decacorn in a couple of years. Uh, and to all the founders out there, uh, if you have more questions, obviously feel free to reach out to me, but also check out my podcast, B two B a CEO, uh, on the Foundation website where I've interviewed. Uh, many Decacorn CEOs, including Eric Yuan, uh, George Kurtz, Dan Springer, uh, and others. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so everyone. much. Yeah. Thanks Bye. a lot.